active and it is eternal and it is life-giving that you create and you recreate through your word. So we ask this morning that as we open your word, your spirit would move in this place that you would teach us and that you would guide us and that you would point us to a fuller understanding of who you are and who we are in light of that. And so we just pray that your spirit would be our teacher this morning as we often had, uh uh, pray as we open your word as, as we're hopelessly lost without you leading and guiding and teaching us. And so we uh, just ask you that you would do that this morning, that you would be the one that teaches us. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Uh, I, sometimes uh, we have things that are so uh, right in front of us, so obvious to us that we can kind of forget at different times or we, we almost forget they're there because they're so in front of us all the time. And so, for example, when you come in and you drive in here this morning and you see our sign out by the street and then you see the sign as you get closer and then you see the banners and the hill in this room, what you'll see is if you look closely, you may just gloss over it because you've seen it so often, is there are crosses everywhere, right? Every sign we have, our logo has a cross on it. It's on the front of your bulletin. It's on those that's up there on the hill and then it's built into this building. If you'll notice, the windows are all crosses and that's on purpose. They're, they're all over the place as you come in here. And so everywhere you look all around us, you see that you see that kind of built in just to the imagery of this place that we come to. The same is true uh, for Christians. I know a lot of you probably sitting here have a necklace on that might have a cross in it. Or if you're like me, your Bible has a cross on the front of it. Uh, we have them all over. We see it everywhere in lots of things and what we do, and we see it all over the place. But what happens uh, sometimes is we just for, almost forget about that. But as Christians, that makes sense. When I point that out, you go, well, yeah, of course, right? It makes sense to us that the cross is central uh, in just our kind of uh, the, the way we represent the church and what that looks like. And so it, it, does, it makes sense to us because we know the big story, the big picture in that. We, we understand that at the center of our faith is Jesus Christ and his life and then his death and then his resurrection and how it all holds together and what he's done for us. And so the cross makes sense when you put it in the overview of the Bible, the big story, the big picture. But if you were to remove yourself from knowing that story and then think about what the cross is, it was a way that the Romans tortured and killed people. And you remove it from what you know about the big picture and the story that's unfolded in Scripture, it'd be kind of awkward. Kind of weird, would it not? It'd be kind of like today putting uh, electric chairs on everything. It, it wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. You'd kind of go, well, what in the world is the deal with those people and their electric chairs? Why do they talk about that all the time? And so I say that just to kind of shine a light on something that maybe we take for granted. It's so part of who we are uh, in our country even and in the church specifically that sometimes we can forget about that. And so I just want you to think this morning... Uh, if, if you met a friend or you know somebody that goes, hey, what, you're a Christian, what's the deal with the cross? Why is that on everything? Why do you talk about that? Or why do you wear a necklace with that on it and all those kind of things? How would you articulate it? Right? Because it can seem kind of strange if you remove it from the big story of what God's done and how it all holds together in Jesus. It would be kind of, uh, uh, well, how would you explain that? And I just pose that question to you because this morning we're going to go back and we're going to look at Matthew 6 again. And then John 17, we've been putting those together. Matthew 6, 9 to 13 is where Jesus teaches us to pray. It's what we often call the Lord's Prayer. And then we've been looking at that with John 17, which is Jesus, right hours before he's going to go to the cross, before he's going to die, he's praying for us. 
And so we put those two elements of prayer together, how Jesus teaches us to pray and how he prays. And that really shows us a lot of what he's he's teaching us when we're he's teaching us to pray. And he kind of fleshes that out and how he prays for us. And this morning we're going to read uh, we're going to look at Matthew chapter six and verse 12 specifically. And so the Lord's Prayer, we've been walking our way through that. If you've been with us and we've been talking about that. And so we just say. Uh, Matthew chapter six, verse nine, pray then like this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we looked at that last week, two weeks ago, we looked at hallowed be your name, but then today we're going to focus in on verse 12. And so he says, give us this day, our daily bread. And then verse 12 and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not in temptation but deliver us from evil. And so we're really going to focus in on that verse 12. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And as we think on that and what Jesus tells us in in John 17, what I want to look at in John 17 that Jesus prays for us is he prays for us over and over again for our unity in John 17. He talks about that a lot. And what I want us to kind of pair up and put together is this idea of seeking forgiveness, receiving forgiveness, and then giving forgiveness to other people, how that so is important in our unity, how that so goes hand in hand. And what we're going to see building on what we talked about last week, this idea of mission and being sent and Jesus sending us out, being sent in the way he's sent. He makes a very clear, direct tie with our unity and our mission. They go hand in hand. And so all of these are intertwined. Everything that Jesus is teaching us to pray and everything he's praying for us, they all go together so perfectly. And so I want us to think on that this morning. And we'll come back to that idea of the cross in just a second. But this is how I want us to look at this. And so we're really going to be in John 17. We're going to look at verses, really going to focus on 20 to 23 this morning. And we're going to couple that with uh, Matthew 6 and verse 12 that I just read to you about. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And so this is what I want us to ask. First is this idea of forgiveness, receiving and giving, being forgiven, but also forgiving others. Why is that so vitally important? Secondly, uh, how is that so uh, integral with our unity? How does that go with our unity? So why is forgiveness so important? How does that go with our unity? And then lastly, why is it so important to the mission that Jesus gave us? Because he makes a real strong tie to why that is and what we're going to look at. And so that idea of the forgiveness, why is that important? How does that go with unity? And then how does that help our overall mission that we've been called to? And so let's just start with this idea of why forgiveness is so important. Jesus God in the flesh, fully God, perfectly God in every way, teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts. As we also have forgiven our debtors. And I want to start with just that idea of forgive us our debts. Big, big picture. Big picture. Overview of everything. The way God has made us. Jesus starts with us that we need to be praying that God would forgive us our debts. And the implication there is that we have something to be forgiven for. We need to be forgiven, but we need to place that in what God has told us and shown us. And so big picture is that God is holy. When we say holy, we mean he is other. He is different than us. God is not us. We are not God. He is something far greater than us. And we could say that real succinctly just by saying that God is the creator and he is the sustainer of all things. Not only does he create everything, he holds it in existence. 
And so that's a pretty big way that God is wholly different than we are. He's very much different than we are in that he holds all of us as we sit here together. We exist because God says so. That's the only reason we're here is that God has created us and he's made us and he sustains us. And so we exist because he wills it. Right? That's baseline uh, Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created everything. He's the one that spoke it into existence. And so when we start to think about that and what that looks like in a very real way, we owe everything, all that we are, the fact that we have breath in our lungs, that we're standing here today to God because he is the creator and sustainer of all things. That's just baseline, basic, basic where we start in scripture. But not only in that, when you start to think of the implications of that, we could say that God is the definer of all reality. He is the one that defines how things are as the creator and sustainer. And so as God defines that and shows us that and teaches us that, he tells us that he is the very center of all there is. And we exist to walk closely in relationship, trusting him. And the reason that he tells us that, the reason he says that is because he is holy. He's holy, perfect. Sometimes thinking of holy, right, set apart, different. Uh, it helps, and it's kind of cheesy, but to think of holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y. He's holy loving, and he's holy uh, perfect, and he's holy justice, and he's holy mercy. He's everything perfectly in balance. And so he makes all things. He is the center. He makes us to walk with him in that. And our joy, our best, everything good for us will be walking with him. That's the way we were made. It's what the Bible teaches. Big, big idea, big picture what the Bible teaches. But the truth is every single one of us that sits here today has thumbed our nose at the God that creates all things and said, you know what, I can do this on my own. I don't need you to be the center of all things. I think I'll just try this my own way. Every single one of us at different times has decided that we know better than God and I can do this without you. Sometimes in big ways, sometimes in small ways, oftentimes all in between. But we've all done it. Every single one of us has done that. And so the picture that the Bible paints is because God is holy, perfect in everything, including justice. What we read this morning in Ephesians 2, that when we are walking in our sin, and by the way, anytime we ignore God and his world that he created, it's sin. We're to define ourselves by the definer of reality, not our own. And so when we do that, that's what sin is, is ignoring God and the world he created. And we've all done that. And so when we do that, there's, there's a, a break in our relationship with God and those things are off. And so the, the picture is there is that we need to be forgiven. We need to be brought back into right relationship with God. That's the picture that's laid out in Scripture. And so every one of us has a debt to our creator, our maker. We're meant to be living in relationship with him. And so every single one of us has a debt. Every single one of us needs forgiveness. And so when Jesus is teaching us to pray, forgive us our debts, that's for all of us. That's for every one of us. That's the way we're made. Now, here's the problem. Sometimes you may hear all that and you've grown up in the church and you're trusting Christ and you're walking that and you go, well, yeah, that's, that's the big picture. I know that. I understand that. A lot of people, and maybe you sitting here today have an objection to that. They go, you know, I don't really buy this whole that I'm in a debt to God. Right? That's the way the modern mind works a lot today. People will say that. I know a lot of people. If you don't have that particular objection, I guarantee you that you know someone who does. 
You say, ah, that's a little archaic. I don't really need God to forgive me. I don't really uh, am not going to define myself by what God says. And so Francis Schaeffer, who was a, a brilliant, brilliant Christian apologist, brilliant man, he used to tell this, uh, this illustration about how to think about that we do have a debt, that we haven't measured up, no matter even if we remove God from the equation. And so Francis Schaeffer used to tell this uh, illustration. He said, imagine that when you're born, you're given an invisible tape recorder that's hung around your neck. And the only time that tape recorder ever comes on is when you tell other people how they should live. Right? You say, hey, you should do this. The tape recorder clicks on and it records your voice. And so whenever you're giving advice to other people as you go throughout your life, it comes on every time. And so Schaefer tells the story that throughout your life you, you get all these things that you think the way things should work and what people should do and how they should live and all those things. And he says you get to the very end of your life and now imagine you're standing before God and he takes off your tape recorder from your neck. And you say, well, I don't define myself by you, and I don't this, and I don't that. And, and God says, okay, well, let's just hear your own voice. And Schaefer tells the story that we'd all be condemned by our own, uh, the way that we've, we've operated in our own life, our own way of seeing things. That none of us would measure up to our own way, what we've told other people they should do, and how that should work. And so what he's illustrating when he tells that story is exactly what the Apostle Paul says in his letter to the Romans in chapter 1. He says, each and every one of us is made in God's image. We bear his mark. It is written on our conscience how we should live. <clears throat> and so we have no excuse. He says, that's the picture for all of us. Every single one of us has not measured up, and we know it in our own conscience. Our conscience bears witness that we've blown it at different times. And so in Romans 1, he tells us that exact picture. We've blown it. Now, God defines it by what he says. But we have no excuse even in our own conscience. And so what, the reason I mention that and I even go there is just simply this, that every single one of us needs forgiveness. Every one of us needs our debts to be forgiven. Whether you believe in God or you don't believe in God, you know that you haven't measured up and your conscience bears witness to that. And so every single one of us needs forgiveness. So that brings me back to why we have crosses everywhere. Why you see them all the way through, why they're all around us. Because the truth is the picture that we have is the only way we can get forgiveness. The only way that God can be perfectly just and also perfectly loving at the same time as the cross. That Jesus would come and do what you can't do for you. The perfect man, fully God, fully man, take your sin, die on the cross on your behalf and then give you the benefits. It keeps God being perfectly just because your sin is dealt with. And perfectly loving because he provides a way for the thing that you could never do yourself. And so that's why we say we're people of the cross. That's why we put the cross everywhere. That's why we're going to continue to put it all over the place. And even people go, isn't that kind of weird that Jesus died on it? And say, yes, and that's where my forgiveness comes from. Praise God that he was willing to go to the cross on my behalf. And so that's going to be over and in and all things. And so this picture that we have when we begin to think about this idea of why forgiveness is so important. It's at the very center of how we can have a relationship with God, even though we're sinful people. That Jesus has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. Now, I know that's very basic, the gospel, there's the center of it, but we can't understand anything Jesus says rightly if we miss that. We have to have that right. And so he tells us to forgive us our debts, but then he says, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And so there's a picture there that when we have forgiveness... 
when we see that God has forgiven us, that we haven't measured up, but he's forgiven us, now we can extend forgiveness to others. There's a picture there that shows the greatness of God and what he's done and how that frees us to love other people that have done wrong and and are broken or sinful, just as we are. And it frees us to do that when we see who God is. We see God's perfect justice and his perfect love. Uh, Sometimes we talk about in different ways here. We've gone over this at different times. The ways that we talk about who God is, that he's great and he's good and he's glorious and he's gracious. And when we talk about God being great, we say God is sovereignly in control of all things, so I don't have to be. Right? If I'm really trusting who God is and what he's done, then I can free now to forgive other people. I don't have to worry about, oh no, they haven't gotten theirs, because I'm going to let God take control of that. And even further than that, I know what God's forgiven me, so how in the world can I not forgive other people? And so that's right at the center of everything he says. And so when we ask the question, why is forgiveness so important? It goes to the very heart of who we are in Christ and what God's done for us. It's at the very central of that. And so the second thing I want us to consider is why is that so vital to the unity that Jesus prays for? You know, when you read through John 17, you see this over and over. Just look at John 17, starting in verse 20. Just look at these three verses, what he says. So this is Jesus praying to the Father for the disciples and us as well. We've talked about that the last couple of weeks, but it's you as well. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So that's you, that they may all be one just as you, Father, and me and I and you. They may also be in us so that the world might believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I am them. You and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. And so even just in those three verses, he comes back to it over and over. But I think there's five times he talks about our unity and praying for our unity and love for one another throughout this prayer. And so what's the connection? I want you just to think of the picture there of being forgiven and extending forgiveness as Jesus teaches us to pray in our unity. How those go hand in hand, how they're so important together. And so I want you to think about just the unity that we have with other people. We can unify over all different kinds of things, right? Uh, We might have unity. We get together about our favorite sports team, right? Like we can all cheer for whoever that is, right? Like Aaron and I are both going for the Hawks, right? So we're cheering for the Hawks because they're in the playoffs, right? And so Atlanta, that's our team. We can have unity over that, right? Or I don't have my ring on today, but I have a, a class ring from Texas A&M. And that's a big deal when you go to A&M to get your ring. And so when I'm like in the airport or I'm traveling and I see someone that has a ring, I go, yeah, all right. Right. We have a unity that's there because we went to the hey, we have a great unity. We both went to the greatest school that's ever been. And so we, we've got that immediately together. Right. And so we can go, yes, that's right. It's a gig of Maggie's. And we, you know, I can say that and I, I talk to see that in different places. So we have those unities that come from different things. But I want you to think about what happens when you understand that you've been separated from a holy God that you were made to walk with. You were made to have a relationship with. You were made to know and be intimate with and trust in all things. And you have rebelled and you have no way of ever fixing it. But then Jesus comes and does what you could never do for you. You were dead in your sins and he brought you to life. 
And so when I meet someone that knows Jesus, we have the deepest unity and connection that far surpasses anything else. Right? Everything else. I could go today. We have unity today in our country, over our country, because we live in a great country. That God has given us great freedoms, and it's a wonderful place to live, and you should be proud of that, and it's a wonderful and good thing. I have deeper connections with someone who lives in Afghanistan this morning that loves Jesus than I do with someone who doesn't that lives in America. It's because they've been brought to life by a miracle of what Christ has done and nothing else. And I have that connection, and it supersedes all else. Think of the, the unity that we now have, the shared experience that we have, that we have met the holy living God and that he's brought us to life and he's allowed us to enter into a relationship through what Christ has done. What a picture that we have. The greatest unity that we will ever find is found in Christ. And so there's a picture of knowing Christ and what he's done for us that gives us a greater unity than anything else. And so you see how the forgiveness, being forgiven, flows directly into our unity with other believers. Those go hand in hand together. But there's also a unity that comes as we walk together because we know who we are and now who God is. I want you to think about that. It's printed in your bulletin each week. If you've never read the prayers that are printed there by communion, we have different prayers, kind of different places where you are. But I think the third one is a prayer of belief. And it says this in there, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing. I may say it a little, little wrong if you're following along. But it essentially says this, that we are professing as Christians that we are more sinful than we ever dared imagine. But then it says, but we are more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope. And that picture is who we are as forgiven people. That we know it's nothing of my own doing. It's what God has done for me. I could never do this on my own. I know how sinful my heart is. And I need to be reminded over and over of what Christ has done for me and come back to that over and over again. And so there's a unity that comes as believers together knowing that I'm more sinful than I ever dared imagine. And if you're a believer and you know what Christ has done for you, you know that to be true of your own heart. I'm more sinful than I ever dared imagine, but I'm more loved and accepted than I ever dared hope. And so we need one another in walking in the truth of who we now are in Christ. And so there's a unity that comes that we can we can be uh, in that humility walking together. We can be holding each other accountable. We can be loving one another. We can be pointing each other to the truth. We have to be doing that. We're called to be doing that. We need one another in that. That's why you see over and over and over all the one another's in the New Testament. I say this often, but you cannot be faithful to what God calls you to do on your own. There's all these commands of what we're to do for each other and one another that you can't do singularly. You can't encourage one another and rebuke one another and exhort one another. You can't speak truth In love, you can't watch over one another's souls. You can't uh, not neglect meeting together. All the things that Scripture tells us we're to be doing as God's people, you can't do that on your own. And so we have a unity of knowing I need other people walking this out in my life. And so it brings us together that, yes, I need you reminding me. And you need me reminding you. We need each other in that. And so we have a unity in that way. There's there's a unity that springs from that because we know we're forgiven. We can be honest and speak the truth into those things. 
Our standing before God is not our performance, but what Christ has done for us. And so that should free us to be open and unified, and it's all Jesus. And so we continue to encourage one another in that. But then also there's a unity that comes, and these go hand in hand with what I was just saying there. Is that we should, it should lead to a greater inclusion. A loving and inviting people in when we understand that we are forgiven people. In all ways. When you think about it, within the body you come in and maybe you become a believer and you go, man, I have all this mess and all these things I came from and all this stuff. And you go, yeah, join the club. We're all sinful, broken people that have made mistakes. And the only reason we have a relationship with God is because of Jesus and nothing else. And so this idea that, that I'm, I'm down here or you're up here or those kind of things, the picture is we all get leveled at the foot of the cross because it's all Christ. Right? Paul says, my righteousness, apart from Jesus, the good works I do are filthy rags. They're not there. We can't do that. We can't see that. And so the picture is that it should, should bring us to have an inclusion of people in all levels of where they are, where they're walking out this faith. Our righteousness is all Christ, and so it should give us this picture of, of inviting people in and being welcoming. And so the same would be true if you think about it just as, as we talk to people who are not yet believers. There's a picture that will start to happen that can start to form in our mind, and we can start to buy into the lie. Right? This starts to creep up because we're more sinful than we ever dared imagine, and our heart is deceitful. And if we're not walking in the spirit, we'll go back to these things. But we start to think, man, I don't know that God could get that guy. That guy's really messed up. I'm not sure how he's going to pull that one off. Right. We start to think that way. And what happens is we start to be exclusive. I don't know about that guy. I shouldn't hang around with him. But the truth is you're forgetting your own standing. You're forgetting what Ephesians 2 says. You were dead in your trespasses and sin, but God, being rich in mercy, has caused you to become alive. It's what God does for you. He brings you to life. Right? If you read down in Ephesians 2, it actually tells you, uh, where is it, in verse 8. For grace, by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. I want you to hear that. It's through faith you've been saved, and that faith is a gift from God. Even your ability to believe is a gift from God. And so when you start to go, I don't know about that guy over there, you're forgetting how you were saved. It's because of God and his mercy and his graciousness, so there's no place for boasting. There's no looking down on other people. You go, yes, God can get anyone. He's glorious and he's in control and he's gracious and he's going to do these things and he's going to allow us to be part of it. And so it should lead us to just go, yes, we're going to continue to welcome people into that and speak the truth and walk with them in it. And so it gives us this great unity that we don't have in anything else, a greater unity by being forgiven. And it frees us to forgive other people. And so the last thing I want us to think about for just a second is what Jesus says here about what unity, how it leads to mission. We talked about that last week. 
Right? We, we looked at him praying that the kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. And we looked at how he's telling us that. And we're sent into the world the way Jesus is sent. And he tells us we're going to have the greatest joy in being sent and going. And he says all those things. And then you get down here and he says in verse 21, I'm praying that they all may be one just as you, Father, and me and I and you. And they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. He says, I'm praying for their unity and the way they love each other and they want to walk together so that they would see that I'm who I said I am. Do you hear what he's saying? He says the same thing in verse 23. He says it again. In two verses, he says the same thing. And I want you to get the picture that he's pointing us to is that God uses that uh, as the great apologetic for our belief, the way we love each other, the way we are unified on the most important things, the way we forgive each other, the way we walk that out. Jesus said over and over, he tells us, uh, you'll know my disciples by the way they love one another. That'll be the picture that you see. They will be loving and caring and forgiving, and that's the way it's going to look. And so he tells us here that there's a picture that God's going to use our unity and the way we love each other to proclaim his name. And so we're called to be people who look like that. I happened to read an article this week, and it was talking about why people visit different churches and what brings them back. That said the number one reason is how kind people are to them. How kind and welcoming. That people actually feel loved and included as they walk into a place for the first time. That that's a big part of it. And part of that is because we're looking for relationship, which is obvious if you know the big picture. We're made in God's image. We're made to be relational. We're made to be in a relationship with God and with other people. And so it makes sense that God would use our uh, love for one another as a, as a picture of the way he loves us. And it's a, a great apologetic for the mission of pointing to who Jesus is. Now, part of the objection that often comes, and for good reason, people will say, yeah, but Christians are really no different. They gossip and they don't get along and they're judgmental and sometimes they're not welcoming and they're still fighting. They're doing all the same things the world are doing. And sadly, that's true a lot of times. A lot of times that is the case. You do see that within the church and people have been burned by that at different times. And if we're honest, we've seen that. And so people outside the faith see Christianity as this isn't working. It's no good. I've been burned by all these people and this is what it looks like. The problem is people see Christianity not as being forgiven, being brought into a relationship by what Jesus has done for you, but as self-help. We do these things and we get better, right? Which is the exact opposite of what Christianity is. But people see it that way and they say, well, you're going and you're doing these things and you're supposed to be getting better, but you're not getting better. And so why would I want to be part of that or I'm done with that or whatever it may be? The question I ask people and what I try to point them to is, is the problem that we're too Christian or Christianity breeds in us uh, judgmentalism and self-righteousness and all those kind of things? Or is the problem that we're not Christian enough? We're not actually looking to Christ in all things. Because I think the picture that is there is not that we're not Christian, or it's not because of Christianity, it's because we're not completely trusting Jesus in all things. 
We want to make it about us and we want to make it about what we do instead of we're forgiven and this is who we are in Christ and we get to live out of that. And so when people make that objection, I go, yeah, you're right. And the problem is we need more Jesus. We need to be more about what he's done for us. We need to see all people in light of the gospel and what Christ has done. We don't need to get away from it. We need to go deeper into it. And so the picture that we have here is this idea of we get the opportunity to live what it looks like in a world that's broken. That's upside down as we talked about last week. We were made to love God and to love other people. Right? We're, we're forgiven people who are now made to forgive others. Right? We're to forgive in the way that Christ has forgiven us. And when we start to do that, as we're going to end here, this idea of why this helps, why this points to the mission that Jesus has given us, why it's so important. Every single person you know is looking for deep relationships. Ultimately, whether they realize it or not, the deepest relationship they're looking for is with God. And that's only going to be found in the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. We're separated by what we've done, but God has made a way. And so when we begin to love other people and we begin to forgive and we begin to live in the way that Christ has loved us, we begin to show them that that's available. They start to see it in our own lives and then we can point them more fully to Jesus where the fullness of that comes. And so Jesus is praying for us that we'd have unity, that we would love one another, that we would be people of the cross that are forgiven and forgiving, that we're living that way and that we would continue to do so so that people would be welcomed and see who God is. That God loves us. That he does want to have a relationship with us. Every single person you know wants to be known and they want to be loved. Most people don't believe they can be loved because they think if people actually knew me, they wouldn't love me. And that's where the cross comes in. So the good news of the gospel goes, God says, I know you completely and I love you completely. I know all of it and I've provided a way in Jesus and now you get to be part of this. And so thinking of just that, that we're forgiven people and our unity flows into that and that paints a picture of who God is that we get to live out together. It is our great privilege to do so. So let's pray. God, we thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you for what you have done for us. We thank you for the way that you have taught us to pray. I pray this morning that uh, just as we think on these things and what you've done for us, if there's people we're not forgiving in our life, that you'd release us from that, that we would experience the forgiveness that you've given us and it would lead us to being able to forgive others, that you would bring a deep unity that comes out of being forgiven people that we would be able to walk out these truths in our lives and that it would be a light to the world around us pointing to how wonderful and gracious and kind you are. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.